Hello and welcome to episode number five of Command Space. I'm Mike Hurley and I've got a special episode for you today. Um, it's Tuesday. We're releasing an extra episode this week, two this week. Um, for some people that are coming here because they're expecting to hear the Five Tour podcast today, well, this is in its place. And I do not have Jim Darrenpool with me. He is going to be on our regular show, which will be coming out on Wednesday, tomorrow. So you're going to get two shows this week, as I mentioned. I have with me Mr. Marco Arment of Instapaper. Hello, Marco. Hello, how are you? Very well. Thank you for for stepping in at sh- such short notice. Anytime. I love the show. That's very kind of you to say. Um, I sent you an email and you said you were free, so I thought, I don't want to waste such an opportunity, so I figured I would I would get you in and we'll do uh, two episodes this week. Why not? Well, thank you. So, I guess for people who don't know what you are, who you are, not what you are, people probably know <laughs> what you are. Um, for people that don't know who you are, they'll probably know Instapaper, right? Uh, it's possible. Um, Instapaper is a uh, an app that you've been developing for a few years now, right? How many years has it been? Um, oh man, I started it in uh, late 2007, so uh, and it launched in like January 2008. So it's been that long. <laughs> so as is usual, especially with a, a new guest, I want to go over some, sort of some history stuff with you. Sure. Um, but the first project that you were involved in um, that was maybe in the the public nerd view was tumblr yep um and there may be i guess there was probably some people that wouldn't know that about you yeah yeah probably i mean uh, you know because at tumblr i i was in effect but not technically the co-founder and because i i was there from the very beginning as an employee of the consultancy just me and david that was building websites at the time and then he wanted to build this thing called tumblr that he had the idea for so we just started doing that and so I was, I was basically a co-founder, you know, just not in the technical sense. Um, and so I was there since the very beginning um, until late 2010 when I left to go do Instapaper full-time. Uh, but I was, you know, that was, I was there basically for, for about four years. And it was, you know, literally from, from zero until thousands of hits per second. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what, I, what I had to... Uh, Managed there, and it was it was a it was quite a ride. That's <laughs> it was uh, you know going. I basically learned as I went. Yeah, as you know, David was too. We were you know we, everyone was learning as we went because there aren't really that many sites on the internet that have ever existed that have that kind of traffic. You know, we're talking hundreds, but not millions here. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, there isn't a lot of reference material. There there aren't a lot of people you can ask. No. Um, about issues that you face at that scale, and uh, it it was it was a heck of a ride. The only people to ask are in some effects competitors, which is doesn't always work. Right. I mean, and it helps that a lot of people in our industry have that kind of uh, nerd sharing mindset and and value system. Um, very very hippie value system of you know let's yeah. you know let's share our knowledge for the greater good. That helps a lot. That that's that's a big part of of geek culture, but. It still doesn't help that there are so few people who who have faced these problems. Yeah, and that and even the people who have faced these problems, chances are the problems are just different enough from yours that they can't really help you that much. I, clear something up for me because I've been having I've been trying to think of this for the last couple of days. Um, was a Tumblr called Tumblr from day one? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was. I think I because I remember the 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 term Tumblog, 
which was like, I think it was spelt like T-U-M-B-L-L-O-G. Did that come from Tumblr? No, there was there were a couple of Tumble logs uh, before, and we spelled it T-U-M-B-L-E-L-O-G. Um, there were a couple of Tumble logs before that David had, I'd never known about them, but David knew about them. I think Projectionist was the, was the big one. And in fact, one of Tumblr's original themes looks a lot like Projectionist, and that's not a coincidence. Um, and it was, it was this, this format that David fell in love with. But none of the blogging software at the time was really optimized to create that. You, know, you, you could do it manually, which was a pain in the butt, or you could, you could uh, you know, just kind of hack a, a, a Tumble log-like theme on top of WordPress or movable type. Uh, but it wasn't very graceful. It certainly wasn't easy. So David's idea was, I love this format. Let's make it easy to create them. And that's how Tumblr was born. And he, he already had, he, he had that goal from the outset. He had the, the domain name. He had the name of the product. He even had the, the first design all ready to go, um, all in his head. And then he, he, he and I spit it all out over about two weeks be- between a couple of clients. And uh, that's how it began. And I assume that when it began, it wasn't expected to be such a mass mainstream culture type phenomenon that Tumblr has become. I'm pretty sure David expected it because David's <laughs> always been really good at predicting how well Tumblr's going to do. Uh, I've always, I was always a skeptic, like how many people could possibly want to, to blog, let alone to do the special kind of blog. Um, but David always knew from the beginning that it was a really good idea. Uh, you know, to his credit, he, he's, uh, he's always been really good at that. I think I, uh, I agree with you, like how many people want to blog. And I guess that's, the thing about Tumblr is it isn't blogging in the sense that we think of blogging. It's not necessarily writing um, thousands of words, you know, down about light bulbs or something. Um, it could be just here's a GIF and I'm going to reshare. I'm going to share this GIF with other people and then they're going to share it on their own Tom blogs and 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 such and such. It's a it was a different paradigm of blogging than I think what we'd seen prior to and maybe even since then. Oh yeah, and it was, and I, you know, use the word share. That's very accurate. You know, a lot of it was less about writing like a magazine column and more about sharing things you found on the internet. You know, the bookmarklet was one of the very first features um, to be able to quickly post whatever you were viewing in, in your browser. Um, I, I did most of that, like the, the sensing of what content is on the page and pulling out the images and figuring out whether it should be a link or a video or things like that. Um, and that was a lot of Tumblr's initial appeal was how easy that was to post. That was, long, that was actually way before reblogging existed. Okay. Reblogging and even the dashboard yeah. were not in version 1. Huh. Uh, it, it, there, was no, there's, there was no concept of following people in version 1. Um, it wasn't until uh, I think at least a few months into it that we added following the dashboard and reblogging. But originally it was really just about easy self-publishing and sharing. I bet writing that bookmarklet was useful for you then for your later endeavors. Oh yeah, the Instapaper bookmarklet started out as pretty much a copy of the Tumblr uh, bookmarklet injection code, which itself I'm pretty sure was a copy of Facebook's, which was a copy of somebody else's. Because at the time there really weren't a lot of ways to do a bookmarklet, um, especially because Internet Explorer, I, I think it might still have this limit, but it had a limit of a certain number of characters that it would read from a bookmarklet, and after that it would just wouldn't work. Um, and back then we had to actually care about Internet Explorer. So <laughs> thank God we're not in those dark days anymore. 
for anybody that wants to hear about your woes with um, book markets, they should listen. I'll put this in the show notes, but they should listen to um, Kind of Critical or Episode 2 or Hypercritical 79, where um, you were trying to explain to Merlin how how it, how the uh, book market worked to uh, m- maybe not intentionally but to to real comedic value for the listener I think where you and him were trying it's, to discuss yeah. how to get that process to work bookmarklets are an incredible hack they are they are a pile of hacks on top of hacks it's amazing they work at all i'm i'm shocked that apple allowed them to work in mobile safari um and that might have been an accident who knows but uh they they really are a ridiculous hack, and I wish I didn't need to rely on a bookmarklet. Um, but in you know in mobile Safari there is no extension mechanism, so in almost every other browser I could make some kind of plugin or extension that is officially supported by the browser um, architecture where I could say oh here's a button that I can add to the toolbar that says add to Instapaper or read later. But in mobile Safari there is no such thing, and and never has been. So, you know, bookmarklets are the only way, really, uh, the only good way, at least, the only easy way, to get pages out of Mobile Safari into an app or a service. But the process of installing them is a disaster. <laughs> and it's, it yeah. is so incredibly user-hostile and complicated. Um, somehow people manage to do it, though. I, I'm always shocked by that. But certainly, uh, I have a lot of people who only use the email-in feature, because they can at least tap the little action button and say, email a link to this, um, a lot easier than they can install the bookmarklet. Um, we'll talk more about Instapaper in a moment, but um, while we're on the topic of bookmarklets, I mean, I know you've mentioned a few times that you, you would love, you would wish that Apple would implement it as a feature. Do you ever realistically think that they'll do that? That they'll have some kind of like way to send URLs to other apps? Or just, or yes, or some sort of full bookmarklings, bookmarklet support or anything like that? I don't think so. No, I, I have I have zero hope for that ever happening. If, it's, um, if it does, it's point. it's kind of like TextMate too. I would love to be wrong about this, um, but I, I don't think it's going to happen ever. I just don't think they care. You know, they they really Apple does things in iOS that benefit them, and many of them happen to also benefit other developers. But if something something like this, you know, Electronic Arts is not asking for this feature. You know, Adobe is yeah. not asking for this feature, although who knows what that would be worth. But you know, like, like the big, the big iOS partners, Facebook, Twitter, they're not asking for this feature. So, if if none of the big important partners need it, and Apple doesn't need it, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, because they well, reading list is built in, isn't it? They don't need it for yeah, that. Exactly. So. Now they really don't need it. They have their <laughs> own. <laughs> but I mean, you mentioned I think a couple of weeks ago that like saying about reading list that even though Apple are doing something like that, your relationship with the companies is pretty decent. Like they sorted out the Starbucks thing for you and stuff like that. So it's not, they don't necessarily, I don't as much as you do. I don't think Apple see what the two of you do as competition. Uh, or they don't care. I mean, yeah. yeah, Apple, Apple and I have what I think, at least I, I think is a pretty good relationship. Uh, they, they're the people who, who manage the, staff picks and things like that on the app store uh somehow i get featured there often um i've never asked for that i've never i don't even know who to ask for that but i get featured there often and and they've occasionally asked me for um promotional assets to you know have a banner here or there so obviously they they don't you know they're not trying to put me out of business i think when apple when apple implemented a reading list 
and and Safari Reader, which I think, the, and 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 iCloud, which combined make up what Instapaper kind of does. Um, I don't think they were saying let's kill Instapaper. I think they were saying we have these web browsers that are in a very competitive web browser market. Uh, what features can we add for version X that'll make this more useful to people? That'll help us battle against Chrome and Firefox and and even if anybody still uses IE um, and. And so they, they just needed features to add. Mm-hmm. So they saw, oh, this is a good idea. People are doing this. Uh, let's add that as one of the 150 new features in Safari 5 point whatever. Uh, I really don't think it was any kind of effort to say, oh, let's put Inspaper out of business. You know, you look at it from, from where they're coming from. Yeah, the browsers are, are, are a really competitive market. And, and especially, I really don't think Apple wants Chrome to succeed a lot. Because if you think about what that means, the browser is such an important platform. Uh, honestly, I'm kind of shocked that Apple allowed Chrome in the App Store on, the, on iOS. But you know, the, the browser is such an important platform that the idea of giving so much control of it to Google, of all people, to one of their biggest rivals, uh, that's not something Apple wants to, to go very far. So I definitely think that the, that the Safari team wants to stay ahead of Chrome, especially. Yeah. And also that that's why, like on iOS, you don't see any kind of mechanism for setting your default browser to something else. And I don't think we're ever going to see that either, unless maybe some kind of antitrust action requires it. Um, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think antitrust might have been the reason they let Chrome in, because um, Google um, got Apple in trouble previously over Google Voice, didn't they? And then they had to allow. That. I don't know how that ended up. Yeah, they, something happened there. So maybe that is why they allowed it. Maybe maybe they allowed it so that they wouldn't be forced to do something more drastic, like have people set their own default browsers. Yeah, or let them use because Google Chrome uses WebKit, doesn't it? Yes, that's and right. I assume that that's probably something that Apple said you have to use WebKit. Well, when Google used their own stuff, which is WebKit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, like you have to use the built-in version of WebKit. Uh, you, in, in a big UI WebView component, you, and you have very relatively little control over it. You know, Google Google did some pretty advanced things with Chrome for iOS uh, in regards to hacking around WebKit's or I mean UI, UI WebView's limitations, but uh, they still can never have it be as good as Chrome on the desktop. Before we move away from Tumblr entirely, I, I have one thing that I wanted to ask. You mentioned about like the way that the business grew so massively. Did you take any important lessons from your time at Tumblr to help you with growing Instapaper into a business? Oh, absolutely. It was, it was basically like getting a PhD in, in running a consumer web service from, from everything, from, the, from the, the, the public messaging side, the business side, to the, the, the design side, and especially, for, in my case, especially the infrastructure and, and the code. Um, Instapaper runs on the same PHP MVC framework that Tumblr runs on, which we actually wrote for the consultancy uh, before Tumblr existed. And so Instapaper is as easy to scale as Tumblr was. But because Instapaper is a much, much smaller scale, uh, it's very easy for me to operate. Uh, in addition, you know, all the Tumblr code that I wrote... I was writing all that in 2006 and 2007, all, all like the really low-level back-end stuff, um, and hardware was much slower back then. Now, the hardware is so ridiculously great. The, I mean, servers are incredibly fast these days. Processors are incredibly fast. SSDs change the game for database servers especially. 
it, everything is so fast that it is now even easier to run a high-scale web service uh, with little hardware and little management time, uh, little management time needed. Good stuff. So we're going to move on very shortly to talk about sort of the main uh, block of the show is going to be talking about Instapaper and some stuff around the service that you've built there. But I would just like to just thank our first sponsor, well, our exclusive sponsor for this episode for making this show possible, and that is the lovely people at Squarespace. Squarespace gives you absolutely everything you need to create an amazing blog, website, portfolio, basically your home online. And the new version of Squarespace, Squarespace 6, is now available. Some of the things that I've been loving about Squarespace, um, they have social media connectivity built in, and this takes form in a couple of different ways. Um, for example, you can have your um, any post or anything you put onto your site automatically tweet out to your followers. Like if you have a dedicated Twitter feed, like Marco has one for his site, which I believe is Marco underscore org, is that right? Yep, that's right. So um, Marco has that for his site. Well, with Squarespace 6, you can have anything post out automatically. So you write something new and it will alert your Twitter followers. Also, you can now embed social um, network type stuff into your website. So using um, Squarespace's drag and drop layout builder, where you sort of drag uh, content blocks onto your site and you can move them around in their WYSIWYG interface. Some of these can be social media stuff. So you can have your Twitter updates easily integrated into your site. You can have Instagram photos as well, which is something that I really like. And you can choose um, grids or sliders and carousels and stuff. And you can have some aspect of control over how many um, images you want to be shown is really really powerful stuff and it makes things like integrating this sort of stuff into your site very very easy and these are all put into the beautiful new templates that squarespace have as part of version 6 which you can see at new.squarespace.com forward slash templates if you just want to see what the new templates look like and they've been really really beautifully designed they have clean code um, and they do amazing things like responsive web design. So every one of Squarespace's templates has responsive web design built in. So no matter what device you are viewing somebody's site or your site on, it will look fantastic. And they do like um, image versioning as well. So they'll make sure that your images are scaled down so they look fantastic on any device. And that's all done automatically as part of the new Squarespace 6. Now, I want you to go and try this out for yourself. I have a two-week free trial, um, no obligation, no credit card needed, and you can sign up for that at squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels, that's 70-D-E-C-I-B-E-L-S. And if you use the offer code 70 decibels 8, you'll get 10% off your first purchase of Squarespace. Go and try them out, import your blog, use in their um, fantastic blog importing tool and I'm sure you will never look back. I want to thank Squarespace for their continued support of 70 decibels and of Command Space. So my understanding of Instapaper and its history is that you created it to help with your commute. That's right. Yeah, my commute to Tumblr. Uh, in fact, um, I, was, I was living in, in the suburbs. I still live in the suburbs, but I, I was living somewhere else in the suburbs then and I was taking the train to work every day for about 45 minutes. And I wanted, you know, I had all this time on the train. I had just gotten an iPhone in uh, October of 2008 or 2007. And I wanted to read things on the train. And at the same time, all day, I was browsing stuff like from, from Dig at the time. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the old Dig, the new Dig is pretty good, but the old Dig, uh, 
you know, browsing stuff and going through RSS and everything. I, I would I would see stuff like in the morning at work, and then by the time I was going home for the day on the train, I would have already plowed through all that stuff uh, because I was reading instead of working. And so uh, I needed some way to save what I was finding during the day for later, just a, in a, temp, you know, a simple bookmark list of here's links I want to read and then be able to read them on the train. And that's what I made with Instapaper. I, I just made it for myself, and I didn't even tell anybody about it for about two months. And then in late January of, or yeah, late January of 2008, I officially launched it just by putting a link on my site saying, hey, I've, I've been working on this thing. I find it useful. Maybe you will too. And uh, that was it. Where did the name Instapaper come from? Oh, that's actually a decent story. Um, it, I it, The name Instapaper was originally, I originally bought it for a different idea. The idea was a, a similar need, but it's a very different approach. The idea was uh, I wanted to be able to print out on paper uh, <laughs> the contents of RSS feeds for when I was going on a plane or expecting to wait around a long time somewhere. Oh, wow. That's, that's a very different service. So, <laughs> I don't think that so would have lasted idea, very long. <laughs> and I actually built a prototype. The idea, it's, actually, it, it's somewhat similar to Instapaper's now very rarely used printable feature on the, on the website where you can, you can click print or printable, something like that, in the sidebar on the website, and, you, and it, it formats your first X articles uh, you know, giving you a certain number of pages worth of stuff to read. Uh, but it, it very similar to that, but way before I had things like the text engine that were any good. Uh, and So it, it was terrible. It, it was such a terrible idea. It, it sucked. And so I, I, after I, I made the prototype, I printed out like three or four times worth of stuff with it, and it just was terrible. The, the parsing was terrible. The formatting was terrible. Uh, it was a tremendous waste of paper, <laughs> and uh, and I, I just never really found myself wanting that. And once I had the iPhone, I thought, well, when am I ever going to want that again? If I have this thing in my pocket, I can read. And you know, I guess there's there's taxi takeoff and landing, but besides that, uh, there's really not a lot of other times when you can't read something electronic in your pocket. And when when a big stack of printed out paper <laughs> would be better, and you would have remembered to make some. <laughs> so ahead of time so it was a terrible idea so i i let the idea uh shrivel and die for a while and then uh a few months later is when i had this idea for instapaper what it is now and for the link saving thing and i figured i'll put it up on that domain it it kind of the name kind of makes sense not really but kind of so i'll just i'll just reuse that domain i've kind of always thought of it like as an instant newspaper and that was where i kind of fit it together with how Instapaper worked. I think it's good that you have such a strong level of self-judgment because otherwise, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, I don't think Instapaper in its first form would have taken off. Oh, no, I wouldn't even have used it for very long. I didn't. <laughs> and that's, that's why. You know, and I, I'm always, I, I think I'm, I'm frequently my, my harshest critic. And I think, I think that does serve me well in, you know, in the way that I don't, I'm a pretty picky guy. I, I have I have pretty high standards for the, for the things that I use, and everything annoys me very quickly. And I don't have a lot of patience. So, which is, m- most of those qualities are bad in a lot of ways. But I found a way to make them useful to me in this in this one area, where uh, I'm a pretty good critic of of the stuff I make. And and even though like if you look at the early versions of Instapaper, 
of what we know now as Instapaper. In, in a lot of ways, they sucked. Especially number one is the design. Um, they they were terrible, and the website is still badly designed. It, you know, it's I've never involved an actual designer in the website. There there has never been a designer's input on anything on the website. And you can definitely tell. All those graphics for the, the Kindles, I drew those myself, and I'm not an artist. You can definitely tell. Um, and I, I should fix that, and I, I'm sure I will eventually. But uh, it, it took me a long time to, to be able to find and afford and motivate myself to hire a designer to do anything at all, even for the apps. So even if you look back at like version 1.0 of the app, it is so hideous. I mean, it is ugly, it, and there are so many things about it that are just horrible, but it works really well, and, it's, and it was very useful even from day one. So that's kind of – and so over time, I've, I've had to develop my – both my own inherent small design abilities and my willingness to get help from others, which is very hard for a lot of geeks to do. It was very hard for me, um, but th- that willingness to say, you know what? I can't do this. I'm never going to be able to do this. I'll be a lot better off if I just bite the bullet and spend the money to have somebody else do it. Worked. I mean, I think probably the the most notable design is it was in the paper four, right? It looks, yeah, definitely it looks fantastic. Yeah, and on the iPad specifically, the iPhone yeah. version is terrible. But uh, and and see, I I can look at what I have now. You know, I say the website is terribly designed. The iPhone version is is not great um, because you know wh- what's happened is stock UI kit widgets are completely out of style, and and that that wasn't the case sure. a couple of years ago, but it's definitely the case now. Um, and and the iPhone version is pretty much all stock UI kit widgets. There's the toolbars, the navigation bars, the table view, all of that stuff looks fairly stock. It's the black theme recently, but it still looks fairly stock. Um, that is so incredibly out of style. So for the, for the next major version, whether it's 5.0 or whatever, whatever it ends up being called, um, I am going to redesign the, I, the iPhone version as well. But uh, version 4, which was the, the, the big splash for the iPad, I think one of the reasons why it was well-received is because it used almost no standard controls. It, yeah. it, had almost, it, you know, it got rid of the toolbars and, and the navigation bars in, in almost every case, and it, has, it, it got its own look. And I did involve actual designers on that, so that that was nice. Um, and, and yeah, that 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 was it was interesting because what happened was with when the iPad two was released, it finally made me use the iPad a lot. The iPad one was was decent, but it was always a little bit too big and heavy, and I didn't get the three G one, so I could only really ever use it at home, and and it wasn't. It wasn't that useful to me, so I, I, I ended up not using it much. When the, when, the, when the iPad 2 came out, it, was, it wasn't massively better in any one spec, except the, except the processor. That was actually massively better. But like, you know, it wasn't that much thinner. It wasn't that much lighter. Um, it certainly you know, had the same screen. Which by that time, I had been spoiled by the iPhone 4's Retina screen, so I knew what Retina screens were, and I was very sad it didn't have one yet. But... All of the little tiny improvements, or, or like you know, the, the little twenty percent here or there, added up to an overall big improvement. Just the whole iPad, the whole iPad two in general was a lot better than the iPad one, and and you know the smart cover being so lightweight and simple, everything. Yeah. So I started using the iPad two so much, and I realized you know what, 
Instapaper on the iPad really isn't that great because it's just like it looks like a blown up iPhone app. And the reading view was okay, but the list view was a disaster. It was just you know the big table with with a little sidebar for the folders. It was terrible. <laughs> and so that's what I sought to replace. So the i the iPad two came out in what April of twenty eleven, something like that. Uh, by June, when I was going around at WWDC, I had a prototype of the grid that I was playing with and showing people and saying, "Hey, what do you think of arranging this like a grid? And you know how does how does this work for you?" Uh, and I was I was testing it with myself too. How do I like it? And I I, I was using it for months before I released it. Um, but I I finally and. You know, I'm one of those people, I, th- I think a lot of procrastinators like this, where I'm not constantly cleaning things, but when I do clean things, I clean them ridiculously well. Like every, like spotless, I want everything to be spotless when I do clean. It's almost like purging <laughs> with cleaning. Um, and, and so that's kind of how I am with the interface, uh, with, with the app design. Like I will let something sit with not getting any attention at all for a very long time. And then once I decide to give it the attention, I want to do it all out. I want to, I want to give this you know, the, the best makeover ever. So that's, that's what happened with me with 4.0 on the iPad, is I, I got that motivation, and it, it took probably six months to make. But uh, I, I, I did it, and I'm really, really proud of that. It came out really well. Um, I agree with you. Like Definitely these days, custom UI is the cool thing, and, and an app is seen as maybe being uncool if it uses UI kit stuff. Yeah, it, it, like I think stock UI kit now looks cheap and unfinished. Like it, it looks, it, it's like when it, you know, being a programmer, I can say this. Um, it's like when you see programmer graphics in something, which is like the programmer made something in Microsoft Paint or something, and you can obviously tell that this is not a graphic made by a designer. <laughs> you often see like really bad toolbar icons, or the worst is when you see. When people have created an iOS app that uses one of the default buttons from Interface Builder, yeah, and it's it's just the the usually the colored oval outline with the bold text in the middle, and it's usually a white background. <laughs> the default iOS button that none of Apple's apps use any of them, <laughs> and, and it's only on like. Really sloppy, quick, quickly thrown together iOS apps that that have those buttons. Um, it now seeing so much of UI Kit looks like that. It looks that bad. It looks that unfinished or unattended to. I think that there are certain parts of iOS that are definitely due for a UI overhaul. Um, from what I have seen of iOS six, there seems to be a bit of an inconsistency with the way that some of the um, the Apple's own apps are designed now. Like it seems like some parts of it are have been given a lick of paint, and some haven't. And I think that potentially by the time it comes for release, there will be some some changes made there. But we we will have to just wait and see. I'm kind of I figure it's it's getting down to the wire now. Like I think if they were going to change something like that, we would have seen it already. Do you think we need to? Like if they change just the way some of the default apps look or stuff like that, do you think it would it would affect a developer in 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 that sort of way? Um, probably not. Only if the metrics of things changed. Yeah. Like if if they if they decided to change the the height of a navigation bar, that matters a lot. Well, they might be changing the height of the whole screen. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually, that's probably going to be less of a problem than if they change the height of the toolbars. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I, I, I think 
I agree with you. I, I definitely thought they, that, they, that we would see more of like a, a, a system-wide UI kit refresh. And, and there is a slight refresh. Mm-hmm. The, one of the biggest changes is that they've, they've dropped that gloss effect, that, you know, that, that stripe that goes across uh, horizontally across all the, all the bars. Um, that's now gone, I think, everywhere, if not almost everywhere. Yeah, and, this, uh, this is what I mean. Some some apps it's still there, and some it isn't. Like you can tell the ones that they've that that are, need the most testing, like maps and things like that. It's gone from, and everything's a lot more matte looking, um, like the the new stores as well. But it still sort of exists in some places. It's quite peculiar. We'll just have to wait and see. Um, how difficult was it a decision for you to take Instapaper full time? Like how long did it did it take you to make that decision? Um, I was I was waffling over that for a few months. It was it was difficult because I had a great gig going at Tumblr. You know, it was I was you know as I said I was effectively the co-founder. I was there for a long time, and you know I didn't want to leave Tumblr because I didn't want to like you know screw them. I, I didn't want to like leave them without a lead developer for a while until they found a new person, um, and I also. You know, I didn't want I, w- I didn't want to like leave a good thing for this unknown. What I think was the tipping point in in making this a much easier decision was Tumblr was about to go through a massive change because the company was growing like crazy. the the, the traffic was was growing like crazy, and up until that point, we had run it with basically just me and David doing all the development, and then we hired one other developer like six months earlier, but for the most part, it was two or three people doing all the development that entire time. And so what was about to happen, though, was the company was scaling so quickly that we needed a lot more people. And it, it was not going to be the way it was. It was like we had to grow from an engineering staff of three to an engineering staff of 20 within a few months. It was, wow. it was exploding. We, and like we had tried to put it off as long as possible, but it was going to explode. And so my job was effectively going to disappear. I would have had to, if I stayed, I would have had to either become like a CTO type position, which I would probably not be very happy doing, and I probably am not qualified to do. Uh, Certainly I wouldn't be happy doing it. Or basically have a CTO be hired over me and get a new boss and kind of be demoted, um, which is awkward in so many ways and I, I probably wouldn't be doing be doing very well with that either and also the scale of, of of tumblr was so big at that point that the problems that i had to solve every week were just daunting and if you're facing extremely difficult problems every single week problems that you don't think you can solve and then eventually you're kind of just forced to solve them in in some weird way like one of the problems um near the time i left was that you know, we in order to make things faster, we stored a lot of things in in memcache in memory, and the memcache servers, which are literally just a server that has a whole lot of RAM, and you run memcache, and it just it, we we got servers at the time that had forty eight gigs of RAM, and just storing things in cache so that you don't have to read them from the much slower databases, um, and a memcache server doesn't need to compute much, so these servers would be sitting there with like one percent CPU usage, hmm. just spitting out network traffic. Just servers would contact them, give me the key for this, and they'd give you back that data. The problem that we faced was that 
even even just having everything being read from cache, even having no CPU load on those servers, they were saturating their network ports. And then once we added more memcache servers, they were saturating switch ports and switch backplanes. <laughs> and like, how do you solve that? And and you know, there are ways to solve it, but it it when you're operating with problems at that scale, the solutions are really daunting. Like, what do you do when your cache servers are saturating gigabit Ethernet and saturating backplanes? Like, there's, there's a problem there. <laughs> you why didn't you just invent two gigabit Ethernet and then you'd have been fine? Well, no that was the, the solution was bonding, you know, bonding <laughs> multiple connections together for a while. And, and, but, you know, even that has its limits. And, and wow. when, you're, when your traffic is growing 20% every month, compounding at that rate, or whatever it was, something like that. That adds up a lot. That adds up quickly. Yeah. So, like, it, even if you double your capacity in a few months, you got to double it again. Your traffic's and, growing much faster than you have solutions to that. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, we were we were ordering entire racks of servers at a time. <laughs> Can we just just get it by by the crate load, please? <laughs> yeah, it was literally like you know because we it was all we were all still at the planet at the time. So it was all dedicated leased servers and not colo. And you know, I'd, I'd email the sales guy, I'd be like, you know, hey, can we have like you know two web servers and one database? And here's the configs. Okay, you know, and then over time that would grow. Oh, this you know this ten days we need ten web servers, <laughs> and eventually it just got to the point where okay, can we have one entire rack of web servers, please? And we were doing that like every week. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, so the problems that we were solving were so big and so daunting, and you know the pressure on me. Was uh, I wasn't taking it very well. I was I was had a lot of stress. I wasn't sleeping very well. I was not very happy because this whole burden of keeping this entire service running was on me. Hmm. Uh, and and you know there, I had I had help towards the end, but I was still like the the one most responsible. So like you know I I had to be available all the time. I when I sleep I I when I would sleep I, I had to keep my phone on. At like the highest volume, so that if a text message came in saying something was down, I would wake up and, and be able to go deal with it. Um, you know, I it was so stressful for me that I was really not. I, I was getting very unhappy, and so the combination of the stress of of the service getting so big that it wasn't fun anymore. Like these, the problems were no longer fun for me to solve. I had been there too long. I was way outside of my comfort zone with the scale of it. Uh, it was no longer fun for me. And that's the, t- that's the time to leave. And it just so happened that it also coincided with a time where my job was about to disappear or change dramatically. And so, you know, David and I talked and, and, we, and we, we parted on great terms. You know, we, we both decided, you know what, it's, it's better for, for both of us. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm done and Tumblr needs somebody to be the CTO who's not me. So uh, it, was, it worked out very well. Does the stress of not running, you know, does the stress of running your own business, like Instapaper, not keep you awake at night? Uh, it does. I mean, certainly, um, but it, it's it's nothing like you know with with Instapaper. I mean, Instapaper has servers too, but you know, as I said earlier, they because I'm running at such a smaller scale as Tumblr. Uh, it's my servers are very low needs. I, I I hardly ever have to do anything to them. Yeah. Uh, so. You know, most of my stress from Instapaper is from competition. It's it's thinking that, and I I, I talked about this a little bit on my show this week, so I'm not going to go into too much detail here in case people listen to both. But the gist is, 
Instapaper is the kind of app that people really only need one of. But it's also very easy to create. You know, in, in reality, Instapaper is the combination of a lot of very easy things to make. Um, even the text parser. There's a lot of open source ones that are really good now. Um, there's Diffbot, a service that does that, and a few other services too. I mean, the text parser is the hardest part of Instapaper, and now that's easy for anybody to, for anybody to make or buy or install. So, and even that isn't that hard to make yourself, honestly. <laughs> and uh, so it, the service is not hard to make. And there's demand for it. And, and, you know, it's gotten some press here and there. So a lot of people have looked at this and said, we need to be in that market. And additionally, even bigger companies like Apple, like Facebook, like Google, they've added their own features that are like Instapaper because it's an attractive feature. It's easy to make and it's very useful. So there's, there's a lot of competition now and there's, there's ever more competition as time goes on. And the competition, as I said, it's, it's really very zero-sum. Uh, people really only need one of these apps for the most part. You know, geeks might use two or three because they're geeks, but most people, e- even most geeks, don't need more than one. So the stress I have with Instapaper is not that a server is going to explode in the middle of the night or that I'm going to run out of database disk space. Uh, the stress I have with Instapaper is tomorrow I might be irrelevant. And that's a very different kind of stress but I've, I'm not burnt out on that yet, <laughs> if, that, yeah. if that makes any sense. Um, it's a very different kind of stress, and it's a little more within my control. But also, I know that in reality, technology products don't get killed when a new one comes out. You know, so even if, you know, right now, I'm already not the biggest service like this. Uh, I still am a lot of people's favorite, and that's that's my business right now. That's my, my my business is basically staying that way. Like that's my my only job is to make sure that I'm still a lot of people's favorite service that does this. Um, but even even if somebody else comes along and becomes a lot more people's favorite, uh, and of course they'll give it all away for free because that's how people that's how people compete with me. <laughs> um, even if they do that tomorrow. I know that my entire business is not going to actually evaporate. That even though, you know, even if TechCrunch publishes a big headline saying, <laughs> new, you know, read stuff now, is an Instapaper killer. <laughs> you know, everyone knows that when, when the X killer comes around, first of all, usually it doesn't actually kill X, uh, and usually it fizzles out and nobody remembers it after two days. But even the ones that stick around and, and succeed... You know, the, one of the, big, big, the biggest examples people cite is Facebook killing MySpace. But MySpace is still around, and it's doing fine. And yeah. most of the problems that MySpace had were because of its own mismanagement. It were, they weren't because of Facebook. MySpace was very, very badly managed and had lots of flux after News Corp bought it. That was the problem there. It wasn't because Facebook was, was killing it. Um, so, you know, the, the technology world is a very big place. iOS is a very big market. If somebody comes along and takes 30% of this market from me, uh, there's still a lot more of it for me to, uh, to have. You know, e- even, even if I get relegated to like, a, an, Apple, an Apple PC-like share of the market, like if, if, I'm, if I'm the Apple in the PC market for this market, where I have like, you know, 10% of it, um, that's fine. It's a, big, it's a huge market. I can do that. I, I can handle that. Um, so you know, if, if my market share drops... Um, I'll make less money, 
And I'll probably not be able to spend as much time on it because I'll probably have to start doing other things in addition to it. But I, I don't think that's that bad, honestly. Plus, I've been doing this now for four years. Yeah. So like, if, if I'm forced to work on another side project while I'm also doing this and keeping this maintained and, and updating it every once in a while, I, that's kind of good, actually. I, I kind of see that as a good outcome. So uh, the stresses, going back to the, to the question, <laughs> uh, the stresses are, are certainly still here in, in running this business, but uh, I, I, over time I'm caring less about them. Which is good. Yeah. Talking about competition, um, I feel like I already know the answer to this question, but um, a listener at Jay Harrier on Twitter did ask, do you ever regret not patenting the idea? No, I really don't. No. Um, because um, at the time I did this, um, I, you know, I was working at Tumblr, but I started this during Tumblr's second year. So it's not like I, was, I had a lot of money still. <laughs> you know, like I was still you know, a regular working engineer. Um, I started this with a budget of nothing. And in fact, I ran it on a, on a server that somebody else was paying me to administer for them. Uh, so uh, I, I started this with, a, with no budget, I certainly would not have wanted to pay $15,000 to get a patent. And that's roughly what it would have cost. You know, I, I, I did some research for a couple of months ago for, for my podcast, and uh, I asked a bunch of people on Twitter, like, you know, I'd love to hear from you if you've, if you've actually filed and been granted a software patent. I want to know roughly how much it cost. And I got, I got a whole bunch of responses from patent attorneys and engineers who worked for companies that patented their stuff and and the the general range that I got was about fifteen thousand dollars, wow, as the average. And and the idea of of a startup like what Instapaper was this you know this thing I was running on on a web server I wasn't even paying for um, in my free time while I was a regular employee of a company. Uh, the idea of somebody like that spending fifteen thousand dollars to patent their ideas is ludicrous. Um, this is one of the reasons why the patent system doesn't really benefit the, that garage inventor that everyone seems to pull out when it's convenient politically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that doesn't really exist. Uh, the garage inventors can't afford patents. And you know, now, you know, if I could go back and retroactively patent it, even if I could do that, which I can't, but even if I could do that, and even if I wanted to spend the money and could afford that expense... I still wouldn't want to do it because I would feel like a huge dick. Yeah. I would just feel horrible being I, I hate software patents so much. And something like this, I I don't think is it's not obvious per se, but it's not that far off. There you go. Hang on, sorry. I I heard some kind of something weird with all right, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> okay, we will not mind. Um, you've over the time that you've been developing Instapaper, you've really added and innovated to the platform. Like, where do your new ideas for it come from? Are they still things that you do to scratch your own itch, like the original idea for the product, or has it changed? It it still honestly is mostly scratching my own itch. There there are a few features, like some of the weird little like on-off checkbox features in the settings panel. panel. Um, most of those, I use it at whatever the defaults are. So things like reversing the list or um, displaying the list, displaying the grid as a list again on the iPad, bringing it back to the old design, um, or like you know only updating on on uh, Wi-Fi and not using your 3G data. 
I don't use any of those features, any of those preferences. I, I use the defaults for that. Um, and those are all just features that you know, people requested that seem reasonable that weren't that hard to implement mm. and aren't that hard to test um, that, that really benefit a lot of people, uh, just not me. But otherwise, like a really major feature, like people often request uh, highlighting and annotations. And I don't think I'm ever going to do that even though it has now become my number one feature request because all the, all the previous number one feature requests I've done. <laughs> so so they're, they're no longer on the list. But uh, that, is, that is one of the last feature requests that I get regularly. Um, but at this point, it's a pre- even that's a pretty small volume of, of requests because all the really obvious things I've, I did long ago, like folders, you know, search, like all the really obvious things are, are long done. Um, so things like the automatic dark mode um, or the geofence updates, these are things that that I just kind of either came up with or or you know wanted and figured out how to do it. Um, those are the kinds of things nobody ever requests, and and it's it's unfortunate, really. Honestly, people often don't know what they want until they see it. Yeah. So it's hard to request. A feature like you. After I added the the um, the background location updates, the geofence updates, tons of people saw that and said, "Oh my god, all my other apps, you have to implement this." And and I saw it in News.me. I didn't invent that. News.me invented that. I saw it there, and I thought, "How has everybody else not done this yet?" And and first and first, I thought, "How has Apple allowed this?" <laughs> and once I got clearance from Apple that it was okay to do it. I was like, well, of course I'm going to do it. Why? And I'm, honestly, I'm still kind of surprised that my competitors haven't done that yet. I think it's a very obvious feature that's incredibly valuable. Like, why wouldn't, once you know you can do that, why wouldn't you do that? Maybe they uh, don't want to. But for some like, reason, my competitors haven't done it. So, hey, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Maybe they don't want to always look like they're always ripping you off. Maybe they want to give it honestly, a little while. <laughs> have, you, have you seen what they do? I really don't think they're concerned. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they have, they don't give that a second thought at all. <laughs> you know, saying about the dark mode, like that was for me a, a, a real good example of you saying about not knowing what I want as a user. I didn't even think I would want dark mode, but I always read in dark mode now. Like I I don't actually I set that as my default, and I much prefer it. But didn't necessarily know that until it happened. It's interesting. Yeah, dark I, and I like dark mode a lot more on the iPhone than on the iPad. Uh, on the iPad, I've, I've, the iPad screen is so much bigger, and I find this, I find this to be true for every iPad model. Uh, the screen is so much bigger, and, and the backlight is so bright, even when you software dim it or hardware dim it. Um, I've never found the dark mode to be the right contrast on the iPad. And I've, I've tried tweaking the colors, the background color, the text color, um, t- tweaking the hardware brightness itself, and I can just never get it to look the way I want it to look. On the iPhone, it's very different. I love dark mode on the iPhone, especially when it's actually nighttime. Um, and, and the iPhone, I have, it, I have the automatic dark mode flipping enabled. But on the iPad, I don't. On the iPad, I, I almost always read in, in light mode just because I, I, just, I, can't get, I can't get dark mode on the iPad to, to look the way I want to. And I suspect it's just because the screen is so large and you're, there's always some backlight leakage through the black pixels. You know, like a, on an LCD, you, 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 can't, you never block out all the light. Um, so I think, there's, I think just enough of that light gets through that no matter what color I set, even if it's pure black, uh, it doesn't quite 
look right. It's it's still a little bit too harsh or too bright or doesn't doesn't look right to me. Talking about the iPad, do you think that a smaller iPad would increase your market in any way? Oh yeah. Yeah, you do. Do you think <laughs> there'll think... be people that because do you think it will be people that have held off or do you think it will just be because there'll be more people with iPads? Um I think it's going well it's going to be both. It's going to be a lot of people um who 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 have had an iPhone who haven't had an iPad. And then it's going to be a lot of people who uh who have never had any iOS device getting their first one. And if they already have, you know, my app is universal. If if they already have Instapaper for the iPhone and they get a new iPad, I'm not going to see any more money from that, but if if it's your first iOS device, then that's great. And and if it's if it's your first iPad, a lot of people who only had iPhones or iPod touches were holding off buying the app because they don't want to read on a small screen. You know, most people, especially people over about age 35 or so, do not want to read on a three-inch screen. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens when it goes 16 by 9, but probably, probably no, no real difference. Um, but the iPad is, is really an obvious reading device. You know, it, it's, it's a great size, and you can make the text larger, you have more room in the margins. It's just reading on the iPad is so much nicer than reading on the iPhone. And especially with Retina now. And so when the new iPad comes out, which I, I expect it not to be Retina, but I don't think it's going to matter. Um, when the new iPad comes out, I think there's going to be a whole lot of people getting their first iPad. Whether or not it's their first iOS device, there'll be a whole lot of people getting their first iPad. And that's why I think it's going to be very, very good for me and all of my ripoffs. I've never wanted to use euphemisms. No, just just come out and say it. Well, except the Independence <laughs> Day one. Which, no, that was great. That was excellent. Congratulations. That was on you know, this I've, week I've been rewatching clips from the movie on YouTube. <laughs> the special effects do not hold up. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, on Build and Analyze this week. Marco compared um, the way Twitter is dealing with its um, third-party developers like that of uh something out of Independence Day. Just listen to the episode. So, you know, I don't want to ruin it for you. You'll have to work with us if you want to go over 100,000 tokens. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Horrible. And obviously since then, the Tweetbot thing came out, right? Since the episode recorded. Yeah, that was after I recorded. Proving <laughs> like your point. Later. <laughs> Proving your point that actually they don't want to work with you. And it would seem that the um, Tweetbot had a really good relationship with Twitter. Like they had the sh- access to the streaming API quite early. Um, but it seems that it doesn't matter. They don't care. Um, you're doing something we don't want you to do. You can come and talk to us as much as you like. But yeah, I, I think I think it might be more like talk at us, and yeah. we will talk at you. And we will choose to listen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. I don't think it's going to be that much of a conversation. No. No, you can make your suggestions, and then we will listen to them and ignore them, and, and tell you what we <laughs> yes. want you to do. Exactly. It's like, like I've 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 often described in my show like what it's like to get a phone call from an Apple app reviewer. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious because they aren't really allowed to say that much. Uh, they they're obviously trying as hard as they can to get off the phone as quickly as possible while saying as little as possible. Um, and and so when you when they call you, you know they'll be like, you have to change this thing because of this problem. And here's what you and you know here's the here's the rule like apps must blah 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 blah, and if you ask them any kind of clarifying question or follow up, well, oh, can I can I do this? 
they won't say yes, generally speaking. They will just repeat the rule back to you. <laughs> well, apps can do blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, I'm asking about something obviously that's vague or that, that you know, that's an edge case here. So can I, can I X or Y? And they will, they just, one time I got a really nice guy who actually said yes or no to those things. But I've, I've gotten like four of these calls. The others were all like robots. <laughs> like, and, you know, it's, you can tell that they want to be helpful. And so they'll try like in, they'll try to help you out by what they're not saying, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. But you can tell that they're really not allowed to say anything. And so it's just hilarious. That's how I think it's going to be with Twitter. I, I think if you if you do work with Twitter, it's going to be more like Twitter just telling you, here's the way it has to be. And you don't really get that much of a say in it. Because what power do you have as an app developer? None. You have no power at all. Because they, they can just turn you off. Like, yeah. that's the big thing as compared to maybe some other platforms, whatever. They can just, because the way that, you know, OAuth was meant to make, was made things so easy when it came to actually developing, it also makes it very easy for Twitter to shut you down. Exactly. It's, it's one of the great um, powers of OAuth uh, and things like OAuth for the API provider is that it provides tons of power to them. And, you know, it's not like RSS scraping where you can just kind of run some web bots somewhere and fetch this public feed and hope that they don't find you or block you. Um, you know, you have to register with them and, and they will monitor that, and they they can tell when you're getting popular and shut you down, and, and there's not a lot you can do about it, um, you know. And and what are you going to do? Like, if if all the third party clients uh, are cut off today, say, no, well, they wouldn't do it today. They would do it on a Friday evening. Um, let's say on on a Friday evening, Twitter kills all the third party clients. What are they going to do? Like, what 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 does Tweetbot do? And the answer probably is nothing. <laughs> it's like they're. There, you have no. Re- it's like it's like when Google when Google kills your Google account for some reason. Yeah. Like if they if they disable your Google account, there's nothing you can do about it. Like there's nobody you can call. There's no support. There's like nothing unless you're Matt Honan. There's absolutely nothing that they can do, um, because they they do not want you. They, Google's not good at dealing with people. They're people people. They they're not good at dealing with people. Uh, they, you know, so a Twitter app developer. What are they going to do if Twitter cuts them off? Um, and I think one possible answer is. Make an app.net client, but we don't. We still don't know how that story ends. Uh, we don't really know. You know, app.net it has only been around for a few weeks, really. Yeah, the story's basically not even begun. Right. Uh, so we really don't know. You know, maybe maybe Twitter was about to kill all the clients, and when app.net came around, they said, "Let's hold off and let app.net have its day in the press." flare out, get abandoned, and then we'll kill all third-party clients. Because it definitely seemed like it made more sense for them to kill rather than to handicap. Well, and, and I, I do know uh, for a fact that this decision was still being made like fairly recently. They, this, was not in, this was not in the works for a long time. Like, they, didn't, they didn't decide this six months ago. They decided it extremely recently, <laughs> and like they were still arguing about it and still trying to figure out what to do. Uh, so, you know, I, I, maybe what they're going to do is just you know wait until there are no alternatives again. Because <laughs> right right now there's an alternative, and you know when, when you charge fifty bucks for admission and you have a, a reasonably terrible name and it seems like it's only for geeks, 
Um, certainly growth is going to be slow going relative to Twitter's growth. Uh, so I don't think Twitter is worried about AppNet getting huge, uh, at least quickly. But I do think it gave them, it probably gave them some pause <laughs> to be like, yeah, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Maybe we don't want to make all the third party developers suddenly make a whole bunch of really good third party clients by reusing all their code bases for this other service. Um, maybe, maybe that let them delay. You know, maybe in March 2012, when, when a lot of this stuff goes into effect, um, you know, maybe then they'll say, oh, you know what, no more third party clients. To wait and see. Yeah, who knows? I, I, I think. And you know, and I said this on, on two shows ago. I I really do not like the idea of replacing Twitter with another centralized service. Uh, even though AppNet seems like you know their heads are in the right place and and they they seem like decent people running it, uh, you know, decent people with their heads in the right place started Twitter too. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this. It's like, well, App.net only works until they can't make any more money, and then. Then they say, well, we're going to do ads now, but they're going to be good ones with companies you trust. (laughs) You know, and then it's, oh, well, we can still have the third party clients, of course. Well, we're going to change that a little bit now. I I just, I don't know whether I can, well, you can't trust any of these companies. And I just wonder if $50 a year is enough for me to then say that this company's never going to ruin everything. Well, that's, you know, you can't think like that, I don't think. Well, and, and the fact is, they can't keep the price of 50 bucks a year. No. They can't, because if they keep the price that high, it's way too high. If they keep it that high, it'll never get enough people to make the people who are willing to pay 50 bucks stick around and pay again next year. That's the thing. Like If, if you paid 50 bucks for this thing this year, what's going to happen when next year comes around and they ask you to renew? You're probably going to think, okay, how, have I really gotten a lot of value out of the service over this year? And if, if people don't stick around there or if they don't get enough people that you want to follow there... Uh, you might not choose to renew your your plan, so they need not only to think about how to get new people in, but how to keep the people they who who gave them the shot, who gave them that fifty bucks, who gave them the try, and that unfortunately is going to require them, to, I think, to lower the price and really really make a big splash, uh, attracting new people to the platform, because this is the kind of network that is you know the typical social network. It's it's only valuable if a lot of people use it. Mm-hmm. And and so that's that's I think their biggest challenge is how are they going to get us to renew our memberships next year? I think at the moment they're struggling to just get all the nerds to use it. Well, certainly. I mean, that's you know, nerds are are, are an interesting bunch. Uh, we we tend to be either very willing to support things like this or not willing to pay for anything ever. <laughs> very few people in between. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, it's very hard to get nerds to support anything that's not free. You know, to, to get well, to get a lot of nerds to support anything that's not free. Uh you you can get like, you know, the the altruistic set who doesn't mind spending 50 bucks here and there, but even that's a lot of money. You know, like I like I haven't even made my business accounts. Like I, I don't have a marker.org account there. I don't have an, an Instapaper account there because I'm like I don't I don't really want to spend like 300 bucks registering accounts on yeah. this service that mm-hmm. I don't know where it's going to go. Like I don't in 6 months am I going to care about these accounts? Am I going to look back and say what an idiot I was for having spent 300 bucks on this? Or am I going to look back and say man I wish I would have started this earlier? I don't know. And like people ask me if I'm going to add support to Instapaper for sharing to AppNet. And the answer to that is I don't know yet. 
You know, there have been so many services that have come and gone just, you know, while I've been running Instapaper. So many services that have, that have come and gone um, that people always ask, oh, you should add this. You know, why haven't you added Plurk? Or why, <laughs> why can't I share wow. a LinkedIn? Oh, that's because I hate LinkedIn. But like, why, why can't I share to Pounce? <laughs> I forgot <laughs> about Plurk. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't want to have to add a feature and then take it away. I don't want to have to have all this work invested in a feature that's only going to last three months. So I'm not going to add a feature for a service that I'm pretty sure is not going to, or that, that I'm not that sure is going to be there in a year. Because I am just one person doing Instapaper. I, I don't have infinite resources. I want to make sure I'm spending my time wisely doing things that will matter. And I don't want to write a feature for a service that's only going to be cool for two weeks. So I think AppNet will stick around. I think it'll be here for a while. But it's so early, I don't want to really commit a lot of time to that yet. Talking about third-party clients, um, I had another question coming from Twitter from at Hairy Egg. <laughs> um, what is your what a great name? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, what is your opinion on third-party Instapaper clients, and is there a way to tell if one is authorized? The easiest way to tell if it's authorized is that the authorized ones will, will require you to have a subscription account. So if you have not, if you are not paying Instapaper a dollar a month for a subscription account. Uh, and you're using an Instapaper client that I didn't make, uh, or that isn't the Android client, that's, a, that's the, the official one, which I didn't make technically, but it's, it's, the, it's the Instapaper client. <laughs> if, if you don't have a subscription account, and you're using an unofficial Instapaper client, it is not authorized. Simple as that. Uh, I have not authorized... Uh, well, actually, there's like two apps out there that I gave permission to not require subscription accounts, but they're not full clients. They're like apps that do something else that happens to read your Instapaper account as, as like a sub-feature. So if you're using a full client that doesn't require the subscription account, it's ripping me off. <laughs> Simple as that. And you know, and the question of how I feel about this, um, I, I treat it a lot like I treat piracy. Uh, I, I just kind of accept it as a cost of doing business. That I, I, I can't really do that much about it. It's not worth my time to really fight these guys much. Um, I, I, it's, it's funny. The guy who makes... Um, InstaFetch on Android. That's, that's, I, think that, I think that's probably the biggest unauthorized third-party client. And uh, he's emailed me a few times. Like, you know, he, every time he emails me, he, he, he says something along the lines of, you know, let's try to work together and, and, and figure this out. And every time I say, okay, here's what I want. Use the public API and require these, these subscription accounts. And then the conversation ends. He's like, he I never, don't, don't mean that. <laughs> Right, he he he's he's completely unwilling to do that. So, he, I, and I think I'm sure he wants me to set up some kind of complicated revenue share or something. I don't want to have to deal with that. I, that's that's not you know that's complicated. It's probably not going to be as profitable for me. And, and like I, I discussed on my last uh, podcast on Build and Analyze, that it, I'm spending like 16 grand a month running Instapaper. So it's it's a lot of money to run a service of this scale. And so. You know, when I charge a buck a month for subscriber accounts, that money goes somewhere. You know, the, I'm, I didn't just invent that price out of thin air. I, I'm, I'm not going to be happy taking significantly less than that. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, so this guy offering to do, oh, maybe we'll do some other kind of arrangement, but I don't want to do that. Well, that's what I want. 
It's kind of the conversation ends there. <laughs> it's definitely not worth your time. I'm looking on the Play Store at the moment because they have an installs. I don't know if you probably. I don't know if you are aware actually, but on the Google Play Store on the web, they have a like a give you a rough estimation of how many devices the app is installed on. I actually didn't know that. Um, InstaFetch Pro. Which is Wait, so paid. people who are always asking me how much I've made from my Android client, they can just go there and look? Yeah, they can just roughly guess, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, Instapaper Pro, which is a £1.99, so it's probably like $4 or something, has between one to 5000 Wait, 5, you mean InstaFetch Pro, or does somebody actually call their app Instapaper Pro? Oh, sorry, no, InstaFetch Pro. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been terrible. Yes. Um, that has between one to 5000 installs. While Instapaper, the official one that you have sanctioned, has between ten and fifty thousand. So you're saying, <laughs> wait, between ten and fifty? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the range. That that's the range. <laughs> that's not very precise. No, not at all. <laughs> this has somewhere between one and a million installs. <laughs> well, Instafetch Lite, which is obviously the free version, also has between ten and fifty thousand. So I'm kind of surprised that that the free one is is that low. Or relatively low, whatever the, whatever that number actually is. <laughs> yeah, it could be ten thousand and one or forty nine thousand nine ninety nine. But 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 you know you can start doing the math and you can see like you know if, if my service is costing sixteen thousand dollars a month to run and you know what could I what could I get out of this guy total? Nothing. Right. It's you know it doesn't even cover a month of of running the service. So, you know after you pull everybody's fees and taxes and crap out, uh, so it. You know that, that's why, like you know, if if you aren't willing to use my real API that gives me real money, then sorry, that's yeah. that's not what I want. But you would definitely earn more out of him using the API than doing any sort of revenue sharing. Sure, you know, and I understand that what he wants is, you know, it, it's unfortunate that you know that people don't want to pay twice for things. That a lot of people, you know, if you're trying to sell a third-party newspaper client for money, then people are buying your client for like you know three bucks or whatever it is. And then they have to also pay me for their account. And I recognize that's kind of an awkward position to be in as somebody selling that client. But I also recognize that this is the business I'm in. You know, I'm not in the everything is free VC funded business. This is the business I'm in. And, and I have to pay my costs somehow. So I don't think that's unreasonable. And if it puts you in an awkward position as a stranger who's trying to profit off of my service, that's kind of not my problem, and this, this I think this goes back a lot to what Twitter is is in right now. Like, you know, Twitter doesn't really care about geeks like us using third party clients because they don't need to care. They have Lady Gaga. They don't give a crap about us. No. You know, and and they have, you know, they're in the celebrity and big media game now. When when you're first starting out a web service, you got to get people like Robert Scoble to use your service. Um, because you know they're big in the geek world, but once you move past that and you get into normal people, average people, and then celebrities using your product, you're done with the geeks. You can throw them aside, which they have, and it doesn't matter. Twitter is going to be fine. Twitter is going to keep going. If just like Instapaper is fine because I don't cater to the needs of like three or four developers who want to make clients but don't want to don't want to have to require the paid accounts. You know, I'm fine because my audience is bigger than just those, you know, three or four people and and the people who they would influence by ranting about that decision. Um, just say in the same way, Twitter doesn't need to care about anybody like us because they have all these bigger celebrities. They have deals with TV shows and movies and all this crap. They don't need us. They did for a while. That's that's true. We did help build the service in in, in a way by. 
by you know promoting it and making all these apps and things that, that added value to it. Uh, but we also got value out of it. We use it all the time for free. <laughs> and so what Twitter is is changing, and it's, it's different now. I mean, look, once they, once they change their app to have those stupid connect and discover buttons, and I think you, I think you could tell right then that things are changing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because all of a sudden, like, where do, where do direct messages go? I don't, who do I want to discover? I don't want to connect with people. I already connected with all the people I follow. I'm, I'm done with that. Like, I don't, and, and like the dick bar, I don't, I don't want to browse trending topics that I find tacky and offensive and cheap. Um, but Twitter is changing. Twitter is no longer what it was when we all joined it. And we, we kind of are now using it in this legacy mode. Like We still don't see the promoted tweets because they don't show up in our clients. We don't really see the dick bar contents because those are only on the website now. Um, you know, we, we are using this this legacy Twitter that they're continuing to permit to run uh, out of the goodness of their heart or something. But they have no incentive to continue this operation anymore. They really don't. We are not making them any money because we aren't seeing the promoted tweets. We're not making these stupid trends. We're not interacting with celebrities and brands. We're not doing any of that crap. That's how they make all their money and we aren't doing any of it. So if we all leave, Twitter's fine. They don't care. We don't matter anymore. We are too small to matter to them. We are very big on the internet, but Twitter is bigger than us by a lot now. So if all the celebrities started using something else, then they would care. <laughs> that, you'd see that. You'd see something change then. But as long as that's not happening, they don't, they don't need to care. It's simple as that. They, you know, it's like, like ExxonMobil doesn't care about us because of all the people who buy oil we're a pretty small portion. Yeah. You know? So it's just Twitter, like, you know, obviously they're not an oil company yet. Uh, who knows how they're, I'm sure they'll find a way to get there. But, you know, <laughs> they're so much bigger now than our little world of geeks uh, that they don't need to cater to us. They're, they're merely tolerating us, which is why it's so hostile and which is why it's never going to get better because they are merely tolerating us. Yeah. And tolerating yeah. somebody is not a good emotion. No. You know, it's, I always love when it's used like in, in like, you know, super happy, touchy feely, you know, euphemisms. Oh, let's, we'll have a tolerance seminar or something like that. Tolerance is not a good word. You know, tolerance implies uh, reluctance. And so, you know, if, if Twitter is simply tolerating us for a while, but they have all the power and no real reason to keep us around. We're screwed. That's that's it. You know, it's it. it what, the situation now is going to end. It's going to go away. We, you know, all the stuff we like about Twitter is going to end, uh, and and probably within a year or two, I'd guess, um, just because they don't they don't need to care anymore. They don't. And they if we all left, if every nerd up sticks and left tomorrow, it wouldn't make a difference to them anyway. Right. I mean, what it would do is you know we nerds are really good at starting things out. So we would, whatever, wherever we went, if we went somewhere in a concentrated fashion, like AppNet maybe, wherever we went, we would give it a big boost in initial usage. Mm-hmm. But Twitter is just so big now, that might not matter. That you know, Even if we give somebody else a big boost and they get going in, in a strong way, uh, I don't think that's even going to matter to Twitter. I think they're, they're just so big now that... I, even that wouldn't disrupt them enough to matter. No. See, I convinced like friends and my like my girlfriend and, and everyone to join Twitter 
right? That's what you know. That's what the nerds did. I think a lot of the initial influx was nerds getting their non-nerd friends to join. But I wouldn't be able to get them to pay fifty dollars a year. They wouldn't. No, do yeah. It. There's there's nobody I could I could make. I don't think I could even get my wife to join AppNet. Why would they do it? Like, what's the benefit to them? Nothing that Twitter does upsets them. If like um, my other half uses Tweetbot, but if Tweetbot gets pulled, she's just going to go back to Twitter. Like she she doesn't. I mean, yeah. It would annoy her for half an hour. Yeah, I mean, like like I I went I was using all the official clients until until Twitter ruined the iPhone one with that whole connect and discover stuff, and that's when I switched to Tweetbot everywhere, and. Even the Mac, until Tweetbot for Mac Alpha came out, I was using the Twitter app for Mac, the official one that by Lauren Bricker that Twitter hasn't touched in like a year. Um, you know that because he ever since he left, they haven't touched it. Um, you know, and, and so my, yeah, my wife is still using the official app. When when the whole connect and discover stuff came onto that app, she was annoyed for a day, and then she kept using it. <laughs> you know, it like. That's what people do. Most people are not as picky as nerds, and most people will tolerate a lot of stuff like that because that's how the rest of their life is. You know, that's everything else they see in their life. There's ads all over things. Things you know, kind of suck sometimes. We nerds are the really picky ones who try to control our environment so much that we never see or interact with anything we don't like. But that's very unusual among the general population. Yep. Just before we wrap up, I'll ask you a couple of quick questions about your site, Marco.org. Sure. So this is your personal web blog, um, which you currently host on your own um, blogging engine called Second Crack, which um, you created yourself. It's a Dropbox-based thing, is my understanding. Yep. Um, how much of your time do you devote to writing? Um, of, of all the time that I'm working, you know, like at the computer working, mm-hmm. um, probably... Maybe a quarter of it. It's quite a, it's quite a big chunk. I, I've always written. I, I've always spent about the same proportion of my time writing. Um, just I didn't have an audience for years. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I uh, writing is something that I love doing. I, I absolutely love it. I I've always said to myself that no matter what happens to my programming career, I will never do anything to jeopardize my ability to continue writing. So one thing is I would never work for a company that prohibited me from blogging. Hmm. Um, I just, I can't, like I, I have to write. It's something I, I, I just have to do it. I have, you know, it's like, it, it's like when you haven't gone to the bathroom for a while, you start getting all plugged up. Uh, that's why I'm with <laughs> writing. I, I really, I have to write every so often. I, I just have to get it out. I have to get my thoughts out. I have to, I have to clarify my own thoughts to myself, which happens while you write. Um, I just have to do that. So, and that's one of the reasons why. And I, I've also always loved reading blog post length content, which used to be called magazines. <laughs> and so now it's blog posts. But you know, when I was younger, before blogs were a thing, uh, I just read tons of magazines, and and then online magazine type sites, and then eventually blogs. Um, so I've always loved that world of both reading and writing. This kind of thing, and that's one of the reasons why I needed and created Instapaper, and and I, I always and, and Tumblr had had some part of that too. That I kind of fell into that there. Um, I, I always want to have writing be involved in what I do. You know, like I I have a couple of ideas for like 
games and stuff that I would probably just never do because the amount of work required to make a whole new thing, especially something like a game, uh, it's so much work that you have to really, really love it a lot for a long time and be motivated for a very long time to work on that, uh, to, to do it. And I don't see myself being motivated for that long to do anything outside of this world of what I love most, which is this reading and writing things like blog posts and, and similar type content. So your, your site is, has been, is growing um, quite rapidly. Do you yeah. ever think that one day it could become your main source of income? I hope it does. Really? Honestly, I would, love, I would love that. You know, right now, I, I've, I said somewhere once before, yeah, you know, right now I am a programmer with a writing side business. And I would love to flip that around sometime and to be a writer with a programming side business. It's really interesting. Uh, obviously, I'm not there yet, but uh, I, I would love to get there someday. And, and I think that is, uh, that is certainly a long-term goal of mine. Um, you know, I'm, not like, I'm not constantly working on that particular goal every day, but that is a long-term goal of mine. Well, that would definitely be interesting to see that transition over time. So We'll see. We will look out for it. Marco, thank you so much Thanks. for joining us. a lot of fun. Where can people find you? Marco.org. Excellent. And you're on all the Twitters and the app.nets. Can they find links to those things there? Uh, Twitter is Marco Arment. AppNet is just Marco. Just to be different. Yeah, well, to upgrade. Oh, to <laughs> get a shorter username on the new service. I actually, I, <laughs> so when, during, the, uh, during the fundraising part of AppNet, they had this thing where you could claim your Twitter username up until the fundraising ended. So I registered for the name Marco, but somebody else has it on Twitter. And so I didn't tell anybody my app.net username until after that deadline ended. Because I didn't want the, the Marco on Twitter to go claim his name oh. and take it from me. Right, yeah. I was very devious. <laughs> You're quite high up in the, uh, in the user list, aren't you, as well? Uh, yeah, yeah, like for, by followers. Yeah, I know John Syracuse is keeping a very close eye on that. I, I'm not really, but <laughs> I, know, I know he is. You know, and, and I... My biggest struggle with AppNet is figuring out when to use it. Yeah. Like, I, I, have, I have things that I go to Twitter to read and post. What portion of that, if any, do I start sending to AppNet? And if, and if I don't send that to AppNet, what do I send to AppNet? Are you using any apps? <laughs> they they got to change this name. Uh, no, I, not yet, because what I need is a desktop client. That's how I use Twitter. I, I hardly ever use the mobile clients. And it, it, when I do use them, I'm, I'm really only reading. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm like killing time somewhere in an office, like in a doctor's office or something. That's that's when I read Twitter on my phone. But all day I'm running Twitter on the desktop. That is like I live in Twitter on the desktop. So I need a really good client for that. And a few exist, but I don't. I don't think any of them are very far along yet. Um, right. So once I have that, that'll help a lot. Cool. Well, hopefully it won't be too long. Yeah. There's a lot of people working on apps. There's a lot, a lot of stuff coming. So, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Marco. It's been a real, real pleasure talking to you and I uh, appreciate you making the time in your busy schedule. Thanks, you too. Um, and, of course, we are back again with another episode this week. Jim Darrenpool will be the next guest. I assure you of this. I'm not going to slot another show in between now and then. Um, so make sure you download this into both. Um, I love to receive feedback on the show. Um, I've been getting lots of people suggest guests that they would like to hear on future episodes which is always great and you can find me on twitter i'm imike that's i-m-y-k-e um, it's the same on app.net too 
Um, until next episode, which is tomorrow, thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks.